we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast version, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. You can also find information about my talk show appearances and any new book projects at MarlenePardo.com. Or go to Amazon and look up my author profile as Marlene Pardo Pelliser. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and also listen to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, and of course, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests as we talk about the mysteries of the unexplained. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy theories, and just about anything that is plain weird, you can visit Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Legends of the Lighthouse the Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse sits on a piece of land replete with history and colorful legends. It was completed in 1860. Thousands of visitors have crossed its threshold through the years, and many of them have reported hearing strange noises and feeling cold spots while climbing the 100-foot spiral staircase. Others felt hands touching their shoulders when there is no one behind them. The sandy beach near Jupiter Inlet has sheltered humans dating back at least 5,000 years. The Hobe and Jaga tribes carved canoes from the abundant cypress trees to fish the ocean and river. They traveled throughout South Florida and made their way to Lake Okeechobee using the river system. They built shell mounds and archaeologists have found pottery and stone shell and bone tools. Their main village of Hobe sat directly across the inlet and archaeologists discovered artifacts in the lighthouse grounds themselves. After the arrival of Europeans, they salvaged precious metals and goods from the ships that wrecked along the coast. They are believed to have died out or merged with other tribes in the 1700s. The following is a true story of what life was like during those years along the Florida coast. When Jonathan Dickinson was shipwrecked on Jupiter Island during a hurricane in 1696, he and his 23 shipmates encountered Diego from Hobe, who relieved them of their clothes and possessions. They were held hostage in the village for a few days until the Diego allowed them to walk north along the beach where they were met by the Santa Lucis of the St. Lucie River and the ice near present-day Fort Pierce. Early on, Dickinson learned that the Diego, Santa Lucis, and A's hated the English but feared the Spanish. It would be a death sentence if any of them spoke English, so they secretly delegated all communication with the tribes to Solomon Cresson, who spoke fluent Spanish. Five members of the castaways died from exposure, but the rest made it to safety by trekking over 200 miles to the Spanish fort in St. Augustine. Jonathan Dickinson later became mayor of Philadelphia. In the 1760s, there was an attempt to establish a plantation on the north shore of Jupiter Inlet, but it failed when Sir George Grenville died in 1770. 
Fragments of British pottery have been found around the lighthouse. In the early 19th century, the U.S. Army established Fort Jupiter west of the lighthouse to aid in the battles fought in the Second and Third Seminole Wars. Soldiers stationed there suffer from what they dubbed Jupiter fever, believed to be a form of malaria. In 1849, Lieutenant Robert E. Lee surveyed the area for potential military use but found the inlet too shallow. In the 1850s, Jupiter Inlet stretched away with no warning lights for approaching boats. Lighthouses already shone from Cape Canaveral and Hillsborough Inlet. Three years later, a tall sand dune was chosen as the building site for a lighthouse. In 1855, just as construction on the tower had started, a group of careless surveyors in the Everglades destroyed the prized banana plants of Chief Billy Bowlegs, touching off the Third Seminole War. In 1859, a two-story house was built for the headkeeper and the assistants near the base of the lighthouse. It was constructed of coquina and a well was dug inside so the occupants would not have to leave in case there was more trouble with the Indians. The 108-foot structure, the adjacent oil house and keeper's house were completed in less than a year and light from the tower first shone out on July 10, 1860. During the Civil War, those sympathetic to the Southern armies disabled the light and it became inactive. Smugglers and blockade runners for the Confederacy used the site to hide from Union gunboats. A yellow fever outbreak forced the USS James L. Davis to abandon blockade duty off the Jupiter Inlet. It was not until five years later that the light in the tower was relit. Captain James A. Armour recovered the missing light in a palmetto hammock near Lake Worth Creek. In 1866, he was appointed an assistant keeper at the lighthouse, and the following year, he brought his bride, Almeida Carlisle, to live there. Together, they had eight children. The eldest, Catherine, went on to marry Joe Wells, and they lived there with their children. Starting in 1869, James Armour served as a headkeeper for 40 years. Until 1939, more than 70 different keepers served there until it merged with the Coast Guard. It was automated in 1987. The following is a story about a modern encounter with something that chooses to haunt the tower. When my friends planned the weekend trip to see the one in Jupiter, the lighthouse that is, I was actually pretty excited. We found a nearby campsite the night before and spent the night partying. None of us were feeling especially well the next morning when we set out to see the lighthouse. I felt sick when we arrived, so I told my friends to start the climb without me and then I would catch up with them in a bit. They opened the large metal door and began to climb up Jupiter's long flight of stairs. I finally started to feel like myself when I heard my friends' voices grow loud within the lighthouse. Their footsteps grew loud too and suddenly picked up their pace. I could tell that something was wrong. They came tumbling out by the time I reached the door. Each of them looked a bit pale and were out of breath. What's with you guys? I asked, looking from one frightened face to the next. I think there's something up there, my friend, Monica whispered. What do you mean? She means that we felt a presence, supplied Mary, another friend. I looked at them all and laughed my butt off. As in you think it's haunted, I scoffed. It's an ancient lighthouse, you guys. It's going to be noisy, especially on a windy day like this. Okay, then you go up there, snapped Monica. So I did. I began to climb the metal stairwell still amazed at my friend's behavior. The air grew colder as I climbed, but that was to be expected. My stomach was in knots, but that was also not surprising. I had almost reached the top when an apparition formed three steps above me. A tall figure formed out of white mist, and within seconds I could make out two dark eye sockets and a gaping mouth, but the lower half of its body remained a white mass. He reached a bony hand to grab me, when I fainted, it started to fall down the stairs. When I woke up, my friends were gathered around me. My experience was so frightening at Jupiter that I haven't been to another lighthouse since. Adjacent to the keeper's house is a small graveyard. Joseph Wells and his wife, Catherine, buried their stillborn children in this small plot of land. This is proof that life was difficult here, and so much took place on this piece of land, that it's no surprise many experienced unusual encounters. 
hear more ghost stories. I was driving home because I was working late at the Jupiter Police Department. It was about 11.30 and I was really tired. About 10 minutes away from home, my patrol car stopped. I put on my warning lights, even though there were not many cars in the road. I then called on my radio for any backup to help me out. I just heard static. Then, with nobody to help, I went to the front to check out the engine. Just then, an old antique car came driving down the road without headlights on. Since I thought it was coming to help, I wouldn't charge them for driving without headlights. I ran inside my patrol car to call dispatch and tell them I'm okay. When I lifted my head, the old car was gone. I rubbed my eyes and looked again. Nothing. One second it was coming to me, the next second it was gone. I turned my lamp on and shone it around. Nothing there. I sat down and closed the door trying to think about what happened. My engine then turned over and the car started back up. To this day, I still never figured out what happened. Another story. Last year I visited my Aunt Fran and her daughter Faye, who live on a farm in Jupiter. They have a lab pup named Bandana. The first night I was staying there, Bandana was whimpering like mad. I walked up to him to see what was up, and I saw a man with a backpack and a knife in his hands. When he saw me come up, he vanished. I told Faye. She's a good ghost hunter, and she has all the equipment. She's even been on ghost hunters. She checked the whole barn and house but didn't find anything. Was this a ghost that followed her home? Another story. I lived in a house close to Jupiter for four years. This was a duplex neighborhood. I slept in the loft upstairs, but I was able to see everything that went on downstairs. One night, my two cats were in the living room right below me. My dog was in my mom's bed. Then I heard a rattling of the glass cups in the kitchen. I thought it was my cats, but clearly it wasn't. Then I saw one of my cats slowly walk into the kitchen and run back out like something spooked him. He probably scared himself, but then sometimes I would see him playing with something in the air. Another day, my grandma was home alone and heard someone call her name. She yelled out hello and quickly called my mom, who was cleaning the house next door, crying because she was scared. Then I started to take pictures with my friend one day because we were bored, and in my camera I saw little bubble-looking things. I showed my mom, and she said those were orbs. We all were freaking out. We asked the neighbor across the street if anything had happened. And he said a 21-year-old killed himself over his girlfriend who broke up with him. He said that it happened in my mom's room. If you looked, you'd see a cut out on the carpet where the blood was at. I was so scared because I have a fear of spirits and stuff like that. That was when I had a dream of a 21-year-old boy. And he said he needed me to find his girlfriend in order to pass on. In my dream, on the door of my grandma's room, there was a picture of his girlfriend. And he smiled as she stepped out. And they went up to the light together. After that, we never heard or saw anything again. Another story. Two years ago, I moved close to Jupiter. Me, my mom, my dad, and my brother. One day, I was in my room watching TV, and then I heard my mom say to me, James, turn off the TV. It's time to go to bed. I said, okay, mom. I was going to turn off the TV, and it turned off by itself. So I turned it on again. It turned off by itself. I ran to my mom and told her that this house is haunted. She didn't believe me. I was scared to go to sleep, but I was so tired I finally did. At 12 a.m. I woke up to go to the bathroom. I saw the light turn on by itself. I was like, this house is really haunted. So I went back to my room. When I was in the room, I did not see my pillow. I thought to myself, I'm really confused. Then I heard a voice that said, I got your pillow. If you want it, come and get it. I asked, who's that? The ghost said, it's me, your friend. It sounded like a girl and I said, please, can you let me see you? All she said was, you cannot tell anyone about me. I agreed and went to sleep. When I woke up in the morning, my mom said she was going to look for a job. After she left, I tried to talk to the ghost, but I didn't hear anything. When I went to my room, I saw a little girl inside of my room. I yelled, she said, I was talking to you last night, remember? I asked where she came from and said, this is my house. When I asked her about her parents, she said, they're standing behind you. I turned around and they were there staring at me. I yelled and ran from the room. I never slept in there again and just stayed on the couch. We moved away from there not too long after. 
and I never found out who was this little girl and her parents. Another spooky tale of a tragic happening at a lighthouse not too far from Jupiter. There's a famous lighthouse here in St. Augustine. Several tragic tales are connected to it, but none so tragic as that of the children. There are many arguments around the tale, but one thing is fully agreed upon. Children died. In the early months of 1870, the city of St. Augustine noted that the current lighthouse was falling into a state of disrepair, and the decision was made to construct a new one. The problem with the old structure appeared to be its proximity to the ocean, so it was also decided to move the structure a quarter of a mile back from the sea. In order to do this, they would have to make it taller, so they decided to place it on a small hill to help boost it. When it came to making a decision about the builder, there was dissension among the ranks. The council tried to pick a builder, but many wanted to hire a man who was gaining renown in the north for his beautiful lighthouses. His name was Hezekiah Pity. The real problem was that Pity was a Yankee, and during this time, I'm sure you can see why some opposed him. While opinions were considered in the end, Mr. Pity was contacted, and he agreed to build a new lighthouse after finishing his current project. However, there was another concern for the building of this lighthouse. When making the decision to move the structure, they needed to consider the transport of materials from the ships at sea to the site itself. A brilliant idea, accepted by all, was to build a simple rail system, similar to that of a mine cart. Load building materials into the cart, push it to the top of the hill. This seemed like a fast and efficient solution. The plan was set, the tracks were laid, and workers were hired. Hezekiah arrived in June of that year, bringing with him his wife, four daughters, and one son. These children quickly fell in love with their new home by the sea and made many friends in the area, especially the children of their father's workers. Those children would often come to the island to spend the day playing with the pity children. Hezekiah's children invented many fun games to entertain their new friends, but the most popular by far was the roller coaster. The children would wait for the men to finish using the rail cart, and then they would run down to the ocean, push this to the top of the hill, hop into it, and ride it, squealing in delight down to the sea. Set up for the ease of the men, the cart had been fixed with a large stopping block at the end, so that when it hit this block, it would not careen into the ocean. Three long years passed. The tower grew higher and higher. I'm sure you can imagine the workers became quite accustomed to hearing the cartful of children fly down the rails. They knew the shrieks, shouts, and laughter very well. On July 10, 1873, everything they knew would be blown apart. It was a hot summer day, but usual for Florida. The men worked diligently. The children played out below. The cart was left at the top of the hill this day, and when the children found it there, they giggled and jumped aboard. The cart began its mad dash, and the children screamed. The cart neared the open water, and panic arose. Screams of joy quickly became those of terror. The workers heard this change. They looked up from their labor and watched, wide-eyed as the cart flew off its track and landed in the sea, flipping over, trapping the children below the water. The men dropped their tools and climbed down as fast as they were able. They ran the quarter mile to the sea, and working together, they lifted the heavy cart off the children. Relief as the lifted cart revealed Hezekiah's son, his youngest daughter were alive, but there were five children in the cart that day. Hezekiah's daughters, Eliza and Catherine, and a worker's daughter, Abigail, drowned beneath the cart. There was nothing anyone could do. Rumor has it the men were not given time to mourn, but instead put immediately back to work. The tower was almost complete and was considered to be of the utmost importance, as it was a matter of life or death for those at sea. The men resumed their daily labor with little joy, only duty. As the tower climbed higher and higher, the men began to have unusual experiences inside of it. Now you have to understand that after the accident, children were no longer permitted on the work site, and the island's population at the time was slight. So it was a very serious concern when the men heard the giggles and shouts of children playing in the tower base below them. They sent a man down to tell his children that the work site was dangerous, that other children had died there, and to send them away. Upon reaching the bottom of the building, the worker was puzzled to find it completely empty. 
He wandered throughout, checking rooms and even going outside, but found no one, not a single child, including Hezekiah's, who were safely at home with their mother. The worker returned to his post and informed the others. The men were dismayed, but continued to work. The pattern had now been set and would continue throughout the remaining year of building, almost daily. The workers heard the children below. A man would be sent to investigate. Nothing would come of it. It is said that Hezekiah and the crew worked as quickly as possible that last year, mostly to get away from the spectral voices. The crew did approach their boss with their experiences, but only once. Mr. Pity met their concern with sad disdain, shaking his head in disgust and walking away. He didn't believe in spirits, and what could he do about them at any rate? The tower was finished in 1874, less than a year after the accident. The workers were sent off to new jobs, and Hezekiah packed up his son and returned north. His wife and two remaining daughters did not accompany him. While Mr. Pity was not a believer, the women in the family were. Taking jobs as groundskeepers, the women were allowed to stay in their home, where they felt the spirits of the lost girls still lingered. Little is known of the remaining daughters, as name changes are given for ladies, but the wife remained in the family cottage on the grounds until her own death several years later. The Mystery of the Island Moor Lighthouse On the 26th of December 1900, a small ship made its way to the Flannan Islands in the Outer Hybrids. Its destination was the lighthouse named Island Moor, a remote island which, apart from the lighthouse keepers, was completely uninhabited. The island had always sparked people's interest. It was named after St. Flannan, a 6th century Irish bishop who later became a saint. He built a chapel on the island, and for centuries shepherds used to bring over sheep to the island to graze, but would never stay the night, fearful of the spirits believed to haunt that remote spot. Captain James Harvey was in charge of the ship, which was also carrying Joseph Moore, a replacement lifehouse keeper. As the ship reached the landing platform, Captain Harvey was surprised not to see anyone waiting for them. He blew his horn and set up a warning flare. There was no response. Joseph Moore rode ashore and descended up the steep stairs that led to the lighthouse. According to reports from Moore himself, the replacement lighthouse keeper suffered an overwhelming sense of foreboding as he walked to the top of the cliff. Once at the lighthouse, he noticed something was immediately wrong. The door to the lighthouse was unlocked and in the entrance hall, two of the three oilskin coats were missing. Moore continued into the kitchen where he found half-eaten food and an overturned chair, almost as if someone had jumped from their seat in a hurry. To add to this peculiar scene, the kitchen clock had also stopped. Moore searched the rest of the lighthouse but found no sign of any of the keepers. He ran back to the ship to inform Captain Harvey who ordered a search of the island for the missing men. No one was found. Harvey quickly sent a telegram to the mainland, which in turn was forwarded to the Northern Lighthouse Board, headquarters in Edinburgh. The telegraph read, A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Duquette, Marshall, the occasional, have disappeared from the island. On our arrival, this afternoon no sign of life was to be seen. I fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land more, who went up to the station but found no one there. The clocks were stopped, and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. The poor fellows must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night is coming on. We could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left more, MacDonald, Boymaster, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I repeated this wire to Muirhead in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes. A few days later, Robert Muirhead, the board superintendent who both recruited and knew all three men personally, departed for the island to investigate. His investigation of the lighthouse found nothing over and above what Moore had already reported. That is, except for the lighthouse's log.
Muir had immediately noticed that the last few days of entries were unusual. On December 12th, Thomas Marshall, a second assistant, wrote of severe winds, the likes of which he had never seen before in 20 years. He also noticed that James Ducat, the principal keeper, had been very quiet and that the third assistant, William MacArthur, was crying. What is strange about the final remark was that William MacArthur was a seasoned mariner and was known in the Scottish mainland as a tough brawler. Why would he be crying about a storm? Log entries on December 13th stated that the storm was still raging, that all three men had been praying. But why would three experienced lighthouse keepers, safely situated on a brand new lighthouse that was 150 feet above sea level, be praying for a storm to stop? They should have been particularly safe. Even more peculiar is that there were no reported storms in the area on the 12th, 13th, and 14th of December. In fact, the weather was calm, and the storms that were to batter the island didn't hit until December 17th. The final log entry was made on December 15th. It simply read, Storm ended, sea calm. God is over all. What was meant by God is over all. After reading the logs, Mirrorhead's attention turned to the remaining oilskin coat that had been left in the entrance hall. Why, in the bitter cold winter, had one of the lighthouse keepers ventured out without his coat? Furthermore, why had all three lighthouse staff left their post at the same time, when rules and regulations strictly prohibited it? Further clues were found down by the landing platform. Here Muir had noticed ropes strewn all over the rocks. Ropes which were usually held in a brown crate, 70 feet above the platform on a supply crane. Perhaps the crate had been dislodged and knocked down, and the lighthouse keepers were attempting to retrieve them when an unexpected wave came and washed them out to sea. This was the first and most likely theory, and as such Muir had included in his official report to the Northern Lighthouse Board. But this explanation left some people in the Northern Lighthouse Board unconvinced. For one, why had none of the bodies been washed ashore? Why had one of the men left the lighthouse without taking his coat? Especially since this was December and the Outer Hebrides. Why had three experienced lighthouse keepers been taken unaware by a wave? Although these were all good questions, the most pertinent and persistent question was around the weather conditions at the time. The sea should have been calm. They were sure of this as a lighthouse could be seen from the nearby Isle of Lewis and any bad weather would have obscured it from view. Over the following decades, subsequent lighthouse keepers at Island Moor have reported strange voices in the wind calling out the names of the three dead men. Theories about their disappearance have ranged from foreign invaders capturing the men all the way through to alien abductions. Whatever the reason for their disappearance, something or someone snatched those three men from the rock of Island Moor on that winter's day over a hundred years ago. The following is a report about the unsolved mystery of those missing men on the Island Moor Lighthouse. I had worked for various police departments throughout my career as a detective. I began solving murder mysteries that others before me had failed to. This began to create a reputation for my professional career. I was known around the detective world as one of the best. This is why I was hired around five months ago by a private company whose name shall remain hidden for reasons I previously stated. I got an eerily generic email from this company that said they would like to interview me for a private job. This was not unusual, but what was unusual was the fact that the interview was in Britain, along with the job. I was hesitant, but because I hadn't started a family yet, I decided to try for the job. This company paid for my flight over and we met to discuss exactly what I would be hired to investigate and what they expected from me. This was not a normal interview. I was already chosen for the job, if I accepted and they told me straight up that they expected a definitive conclusion to their mystery. Anything less, and I wouldn't be paid. This was incredibly unusual, but the pay was so high, and I was so confident in my abilities, that I decided to attempt to solve the case. The company assigned me to the Island Moor Lighthouse Mystery. What basically happened is that there were three experienced lighthouse keepers that were discovered missing by the boat sent to pick them up at the end of their three-month shift.
What was unusual about the disappearance is how there were no bodies found. Also, the lighthouse was left unattended in what seemed like a hasty decision. There was half-eaten food on the table and doors open, etc. The strangest part, however, is the log that was found during the initial investigation. The log was written by one of the three members, and it was pretty normal until the last three days. In these entries, the men wrote about his colleagues crying and complaining about a huge storm. They were all complaining about this storm, that they had never seen anything like it. The last entry simply said, Storm ended, sea calm, God is over all. The scariest fact about this case is that there were no recorded storms in the area during the days the logs are written. Let me remind you, this actually happened. This isn't some made-up conspiracy. This is cold hard evidence. The event took place in the year 1900. I can't repeat it enough to myself that this actually happened. Investigating this case, I've learned one thing. Seeing is truly not believing. Because I didn't believe what I had discovered as I was working on this case. But it is all real, I can assure you. I started about two weeks after my interview and flew to Scotland, where I then took a boat to the island. The island is still home to a functioning lighthouse with living crew members there that stand at their post every day. I talked to the three men working at the lighthouse at the time and introduced myself. I told them I would be living with them while I was trying to solve the case, and they were all delighted by the idea of company. After getting settled for a day or two, I started my investigation by interviewing the crew members currently stationed on the island. They all noticed strange things that happened every now and then, such as voices telling them to jump off the edge and other voices saying things like, he is waiting for you. He will get you soon. They say they only hear it individually, but they all have heard the voices, and they all talk about it and agree to just shrug it off. I continued investigating the island and its physical features for the next week or so. That week added no new insight to my investigation, although it did give me a better idea of what our missing people were working with when they died. Honestly, the next month of my investigation didn't offer any new insight. It wasn't until I started hearing the voices for myself that I finally made some progress in my case. The voices began talking to me after I had been on the island for exactly a month. Unlike the crew members, I listened to the voices when they didn't tell me to jump off of something or try and harm myself. These voices would say things like, go down to the dock, you'll see him there. I would go down to the docks and wait, and there would be nothing, just clear waters and knotted ropes. I didn't know who he was, but when I would respond to these voices, they would never answer back. Eventually, the voices began telling me to search in the cellar of the lighthouse for the answers that I sought. I followed their orders and went to the cellar. This is where things got weird. At the cellar door, it was chained with a big red X on the door. I thought about asking the crewmates if I should go, but they were on their job and I promised not to disturb them while they were on duty. I unchained the door and entered in slowly. I had to use my phone as a flashlight because there were no lights in that place. As I finally made it to the bottom, I realized that this room was completely pointless. There was nothing of value to the crewmates or the lighthouse as a whole. Honestly, I was expecting a storage room or a generator or something, but instead it was a dark blank room lined with cement blocks and wooden floor that supported one bland chair. The room was blank for the most part, except for one sentence written in red on the cement wall. It read, I didn't do it. He we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.
made me. I was unnerved. And that is saying something, because I've seen a lot of shit on this job, and I've never let my fear get the better of me. But I couldn't help it here. I ran upstairs and laid in my bed until dinner time. Dinner is when I got to talk to the crewmates. Most of the time, we talked about my findings and how their day went. It's not much really, but whatever. All they care about is the company. Well, that night, I decided to bring the cellar up to them. Right when I mentioned it, they all looked up from their food at once. They knew what I was talking about, but they tried to play dumb. Uh, what cellar? I wasn't buying it. So I continued to explain by saying, the door with a red X on it, they knew that I knew. They had to come clean and tell me what was up with that room. They said that every two weeks or so, they would all wake up in the morning lying on the floor of the cellar. They would have cuts on their wrists and there would be one knife lying in the center of them. They said they always woke up with their bodies forming a triangle-like shape. They also told me that once I arrived, the voices stopped, and with them, so did the cellar. I asked them who wrote that sentence on the wall, and who was he. They responded saying that they wondered who he was for a while, and they didn't know who wrote that on the wall. They assumed it was someone who was stationed at the lighthouse before them. I wrote down my findings and warned them not to keep secrets from me again. After two more weeks of investigating that cellar as best I could without going into it, it happened to me. I woke up the next morning lying on the wood floor with no recollection of how I got there. There were cuts all up my arms and I was lying in an opposition. I arose horrified when I saw a small light peek from under the door. I ran to the door and flung it open. The crewmates were all sitting eating breakfast, and they were unresponsive to the scene I was making in the kitchen. When I noticed they weren't responding, I walked up to one of them and moved in to tap him on the shoulder. But before I could, he turned to look at me. His face was emotionless. His eyes were completely black and much larger than usual. He didn't blink. He just stared straight into my soul. I was horrified. As I backed up, he slowly stood, maintaining eye contact with me, and the other two rose with him. They all started walking to me slowly, all the while chanting in a low hum. He's gonna get you. He's gonna get you. I passed out before they got to me and woke up to a bucket of water being splashed on my face by the same people who were cornering me a second ago. This time they were normal, their faces filled with fear, like they knew what I had just gone through. I asked them what time it was and they said it was 4 p.m. on Tuesday. I passed out on a Sunday. They said they had all experienced it and they just prayed that it would go away. They told me that the visions only feel like a few minutes but last two days or so. I asked them why they didn't wake me and they told me that I was locked in the cellar and they had tried to break the door down while their colleagues were locked in the cellar but it was pointless. It never budged. They also said they could hear me screaming at the top of my lungs in the most unimaginable pitch for hours on end. They told me this was normal. Another week passed and I moved on by doing exactly what the crewmates did. I shrugged it off. When something that surreal happens to you, all you can do is just shrug it off. Your mind doesn't let you accept that it was real. The next morning we heard the ship that was sent to pick us up and replace us with new crewmates. I began to pack my belongings when I realized I couldn't find my Bible. I brought it with me on the trip for God knows what reason. I never look at it but I always keep it with me, and now I couldn't find it. It sat in the drawer of my nightstand every night, and now, when I was leaving, it disappeared. I asked the crewmates if they had seen it, and they all told me they had no idea where it was. I shrugged it off, something that had become a habit of sorts for me, and headed to the boat. Right as I stepped foot into the boat, I felt different. I felt like a weight had come off my chest. It felt freeing. On our trip back, I asked my crewmates that we should talk about what happened on the island or just keep it a secret, and something strange happened. They looked at me baffled. They had no clue what I was talking about. I told them, nice one, but seriously, and they just stared at me confused. I began to try and jog their memories, but they genuinely had no clue what I was talking about. They claimed I may have gone a little crazy being on the island and not being around a lot of people for a couple of months. I was angered. I thought they were playing a joke on me, and maybe they were, 
but I tried to exchange contact info with them before we parted ways after the boat had docked in Scotland. They responded by saying, we don't bring our business lives into our personal lives. Sorry, mate. Have a good one. Then they waved to me and left in a cab. I sat there reviewing my notes from the island, and I kept wondering, were they trying to trick me? Were they joking, or did they really not remember? And if they didn't, why am I the only one that does? That's when I remembered the missing Bible. I remembered the he that was written in that cellar. I remembered the cellar itself and the days that I spent sleeping in it, apparently. I didn't know what to make of it until I thought about the Bible again. Why would he take my Bible? Was he offended by it? And now does he have the power to control time? I examined the evidence for days and finally drew the conclusion that the island was home to something evil. Truly evil. That was the only way. There is no way someone of this earth had the power to control time in the minds of humans. I submitted my findings to the company that employed me, and they reviewed the evidence. If my claim was somehow proven, I don't know how they could ever prove it. Then they would issue a report with my findings, and along with it, thousands of articles would be written about how insane and crazy I was. But what other explanation is there? Another lighthouse story. The trip to my mother's house is an arduous one. The journey's length is not entirely a fault of sheer distance, but rather the perilous winding labyrinth of roads that twist the thick New England woods. Nestled deep within Maine, Pine Hill claims the title as one of the oldest logging towns, and so unique was this town's isolation that one could drive all day once exiting Route 59 in Bridgewater and still not arrive at the dilapidated general store sitting dutifully at the heart of the small collection of wooden cabins and old machinery. Pine Hill had its fair share of history, but since most of the industry moved to upstate New York in the late 60s, it had largely fallen off the map, becoming even more isolated than it used to be. Having grown up in town and witnessing its decline, I always felt as though the solemnity of the endless pine forest was not as unforgiving as many of the fleeing members of the community so vocalized. My mother never felt so lonely, situated upon Red Hawk Hill, a short 20-minute drive from the general store, and therefore the town itself. When my father left her, she had told me in a fit of crying that he didn't just leave her, but the life they had built together in Pine Hill. And so, it was of great surprise to me that the day after Hurricane Sue had wiped out the last infrastructure of the small community, she had called me. Her voice frail but resolute in her wish to finally leave the area and come live in Connecticut with my fiancé and me. I thought she'd die there. It was late August when Alice and I packed moving crates into the 1994 Honda. My father had left me and began the long road trip from our suburban stronghold in North Connecticut. I knew, of course, she didn't want to do this. She didn't want to lose a weekend to chores, but she came all the same never once complaining about my mother or the musky smell of her deteriorating home. I loved her for this and many reasons. She had wanted an autumn wedding, and I wanted to please her in any way I could. When I had asked her to marry me earlier that year, I told her that she was the most fascinating and special person in my life, and without her, I would fade away. She jumped into my arms and kissed me so hard I could still feel the blood pounding in her lips. The first leg of the trip ended quickly, with me in the driver's seat as the concrete playgrounds of the more densely populated areas slowly crept away from the highway and were replaced with large expanses of wheat and grass, highlighted by the occasional cow. It was midday, and the sun beat down on the green pastures in ways that brought great waves of heat to my attention. When we finally veered away from Route 59, it was late afternoon, and our trip was only half over. Before we knew we were driving underneath the boughs of countless pines, the green mass of branches obscuring the soft pink hue of the sunset. The automatic headlights came on, and the station we had turned in left range. A deep silence grew between my fiancé and me. When driving through the woods at night, one mind starts to wander. The headlights of the car interact with a matrix of tree trunks in ways to assist the jumps in conclusion, so typical of the dark. In your mind's eye, a simple bush or not becomes a face. 
Someone unaccustomed to the woods can suffer this in the most extreme fashion. The headlights carved swaths of visibility into the utter darkness of the woods, like two spotlights endlessly searching. In these illuminated parts, your eyes can utter indescribable things, but only for a moment. For in the next, there is a new area under scrutiny, and the things that were seen previously have all but faded into memory and the pines. My fiancé broke the silence with a slight gasp, not one that was forced, but a gasp of an involuntary nature. What was that? Did you see that? Her voice lacked the surefire confidence it normally exuded, and it perturbed me. It was frail and worried. I could only play it off casually, but so queer was this reaction from her, I instantly knew something was amiss. A deer? No, no, not a deer. It was like a... a dog. It looked right at me. Not a dog, but a person? The woods has an unforgiving nature to those unfamiliar. Babe, a coyote or a wolf, I promise. I know what a coyote looks like. I know what they are. What that was, it wasn't either. I consciously loosened my grip on the steering wheel. It was sweaty. This drive always has me seeing things. It's been a long day. Take a nap. When you wake up, we'll be there. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see her face. The face of the woods. I remembered this drive. The acceleration of each turn was calming to some degree, and even the stress emanating from Alice's not curled up body began to subside. It was hypnotizing, the weight of the steering wheel and the response of the pedal. So hypnotizing, in fact, that when my eyes fell upon the milky white orbs of the woods, I could barely register. Eye contact is something innate. Every human comes hardwired with the understanding that eye contact is an intimate experience shared between two conscious beings. A split second can feel like an hour-long argument or night of romance, even an inside joke. The eye contact I felt with this creature was, for lack of better words, violating. It took the trust and mutual understanding of gazing into someone's thoughts and turned it into an assault. An assault on my core ideology, an attack on not who I was, but who I wanted to be. There was a horror in it, a horror that started outside my awareness. And by the time I understood what was going on, I was screaming, yelling without purpose. I had taken something from me, stolen something. What's happening? What's going on? It was there. I sat there in the woods. I heaved and choked out the words. The car slowed to a crawl. The two spotlights illuminating the trees finally found their target. The coyote? No, 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 that wasn't a coyote. I told her what I saw. The milky white eyes situated vertically over a wide, fleshy smile. An exaggerated human mouth drooling and foaming. It wasn't a dog, though it was a hyena. A hyena with eyes the size of ping pong balls and the vertical flat face of a person. It smiled. The way it looked at me. Alice cut me off. Like it knew you? It knew everything about you? I started driving again. We sat in silence for a long while, neither of us knowing how to proceed in this situation. After that seemed like an interminable quiet, Alice cut the tension with her now ragged voice. How far is your mother's? Forty-five, thirty minutes now? It's hard to tell at night. We don't have a single landmark. The woods just seem to go on in perpetuity. Will it be safe there? What do we need to do? We need to talk about this, Martin. Well, we'll be safe there. There are neighbors and my mother. I trailed off, lost in thoughts of the white boxy teeth grinning at me. Your mother can't even move by herself. What the hell is she going to do? Listen to me, Alice. You and I both saw what we saw, but we still have no idea what it was or what it was capable of. For all we know, it was a man in a mask or wild animal. Everything is going to be just fine. My words filled the empty car, lingering long after they dissipated. They didn't sound like me, though. They belonged to someone else, a liar. I'm going to put on the radio. Let's focus on something else. As I reached for the stereo, I forced an exhale, a long deep breath to let out all the tension and fear I had been building since Alice first saw the creature. And just as my brain lost oxygen and my mind focused on nothing, Alice screamed. A massive thud battered the top of the car. Oh God, oh God. There was blood on the windshield. The brakes whined. Alice and I got out of the car still in shock. The surrounding forest was pitch black. 
the headlights of the car fixed on the road ahead, their beams of yellow luring countless insects into view. The front of the car was bent and bruised, blood coagulated on the bumper and windshield. Alice and I turned and looked behind us. A trail of blood tracked fifteen feet behind and vanished. It's alive, Alice muttered. She stalked back to the car, a lighthouse piercing through the black void. All doubt had left me. All semblance of control was gone. I drove in a panic. Something was out there, hopefully curled up, dying. I accelerated into each turn, faster, faster. Almost in jest, Alice spoke. Is that you? Did you shit yourself? She was beyond our comprehension. Martin, did you shit yourself? No, I don't understand what you're getting at. Jesus, it smells like your mother's. Like shit and, and mildew. The cork was gone. My heartbeat pounded in my lips. I screamed at the woods. Crazy? Do you know what's crazy? How we failed this test. We have failed, and now? Now you're still failing us. We need to stay calm. She looked at me with eyes on fire then. She covered her mouth and nose with her shirt. Suddenly I smelled it too. The thought crossed my mind. In my moment of terror, had I shit myself? I checked to no success, and the smell got worse, louder, angrier. Alice began to cough. Roll down the windows, she yelled. I pawed at door controls, the smell blinding me. The stench, this putrid miasma circulating the cabin, its origin unknown, it choked me. I couldn't get a whole breath in. Each spasm my diaphragm produced only worsened the effect. I had never considered the horror of choking to death. How terrifying it is, how claustrophobic. I slammed on the brakes and flew open through the door. The car screeched to a stop, and we stumbled to the dirt road and onto our knees. Alice was throwing up, retching. The sound of her stomach convulsing, her body expelling something foul. She was crying. I was too. The woods echoed back. Our wails filled the forest. The gravel sunk into my palms as I scrambled over to Alice. Never had I felt so powerless, so lost. What entity could be stalking us, terrorizing us in ways we couldn't grasp? Alice's hair brushed against my face. I heard the car door slam. I looked up. The tires screeched and the engine roared. The lighthouse disappeared into the forest. Another lighthouse story. My grandfather was a sailor from Scotland, and he told me this story when I was a kid. He has since passed away, but I'll never forget the tale he told me. Off the west coast of Scotland, there's a lighthouse situated on a small remote island. The lighthouse is the only building on the island, the rest of the island being windswept moorland. The nearest mainland is almost 50 miles away. Nowadays, nobody lives on the island, and the lighthouse is operated by an automated system. But back in the 1930s, when my grandfather was a young apprentice sailor, the lighthouse needed three lighthouse keepers to live on the island and operate the great light and guide ships passing down the coast to their ports. Three men would live and work on the remote island rotations of three months. Our generation would find it hard to imagine stuck on a remote island with only two other men for company for months on end. No television, no internet, only books and conversation. Even though radio existed, the lighthouse board evidently couldn't spare the expense of a two-way radio for the men to keep in touch with the outside world. 1930 Scotland was a poorer place than today. The light was powered by the time by paraffin gas. At that date, the light consumed 20 barrels a year. Every month, on the first Saturday of the month, a supply ship would sail from the mainland and dock at the lighthouse island, providing the men with fresh water, tin food, paraffin for the light, and news from the outside world. My grandfather was a young apprentice sailor working on one of these supply ships. In spite of the obvious boredom, the men did not seem to mind their job. They were well paid, bearing in mind this was the height of the Great Depression, when employment reached 40% in Scotland, and they worked in rotations of three months. So after their contract was up, they would return and see their families and uh, the other team would take over. The biggest downside was the weather. The biting cold and the gale force winds would often confine the men inside the lighthouse for days at a time. And if anything went wrong, there was no boat for the men to escape the island and no way to send word to the outside world. My grandfather used to enjoy the monthly supply runs to Lighthouse Island. 
It broke up the monotony of his usual trips carrying goods between ports. The men were always delighted to see their guests. The men from the supply ship would be invited ashore and would join the keepers in the lighthouse's tiny canteen for a drink of whiskey, sometimes several. Even though my grandfather was in his mid-teens, he was allowed a whiskey or two. It was a different time. December of 1934 began uneventfully. On the first Saturday of the month, the supply ship visited the remote lighthouse as usual and delivered their cargo. Nothing was untoward and the men seemed to be in good spirits. The first record that something strange occurred was on December 15th, when a Norwegian ship sailing down the coast to Liverpool noticed that the light was not shining at the lighthouse. When they reached Liverpool, they reported to the port authorities, who made a record of it in the incidence log, but nothing else was done. Around December 22nd, a fishing vessel heading home due to increasingly stormy weather conditions noticed that the light was out at the lighthouse. When the fishing vessel arrived at Aberdeen, they reported it to the authorities. This time they took action. On Christmas Eve, a relief vessel was ordered to inspect conditions on the island, but could not sail due to inclement weather, so it had to turn back. They got sufficiently close to the island to notice the light was still out, but could not approach due to the dangerous waves. Being Christmas, the next relief vessel did not launch until December 27th. My grandfather was aboard this vessel. Several local men from the mainland had been drafted to help out on board in case there was an emergency. The weather was icy cold, windy, and with a raging sleet, but the men sailed anyway. When they approached the tiny island, it was late afternoon and the light was fading already. They saw the lighthouse towering over the empty land, pitch black against the darkening sky. No light to be seen. They pulled up to the little dock and went ashore. The door to the lighthouse was open and swinging in the wind. Holding their lamps, my grandfather and the crew headed inside. All the gas lamps had gone out. The sailors quickly relit them to aid their search. In the tiny kitchen, the table was set for lunch. Plates, cutlery, and cups were neatly set out on the table. A pot of broth, which had since gone moldy, was still in a pot on the unlit stove. Upon searching the bedrooms, they found the beds unmade, but the closet full of clothes. The winter coats and oilskins were still in the cupboard, the men's regulation boots still by the door. The keepers would categorically not have left the safety and warmth of the lighthouse in a Scottish December without their coats and oilskins. The sailors searched every nook and cranny of the lighthouse, but the men were nowhere to be found. The men outside went and searched the rest of the island. The island was tiny, only about 40 acres of featureless, empty moor, so there really was nowhere for a man to hide. Peering over the cliffs, they gazed down at the rocks and the sea, but there was no trace of a living soul. The three lighthouse keepers seemed to have simply vanished. Upon returning to the lighthouse, one of the sailors found the lighthouse log in a drawer. The log was filled with the normal boring entries about the weather and passing ships. It ended on December 14th, the day before the first ship noticed the light was out. The entry read, December 14, 1934, high winds. Southwesterly, a ship passed, could not identify the flag. Odd colors matched nothing in the flag code book. Ship stopped suddenly and inexplicably, then continued on its way, seeming bound for Belfast. The lighthouse log ended there. The sailors and my grandfather headed back to the ship, then sailed back to shore to make the report. The news spread fast and reached the missing men's wives and families. A Navy ship was sent out the next day to do more intensive search of the island and the surrounding waters. They found no trace of the men. No bodies were ever found. Several theories abound as to the fate of the three lighthouse keepers. Some believe they were swept overboard by a freak wave. The lighthouse itself was undamaged. Some believe one of the men went mad and killed his companions. If so, how did he escape the island with no boat? The final log entry led some to speculate it may have been a foreign ship who abducted the men, with what purpose no one has ever been able to explain. Some even blame aliens or some sort of mythical sea monster. I asked my grandfather, what did he think? He said, if I told you, you'd think I was crazy. I didn't ask him again, and now sadly, he's no longer around to ask. Last story. My name is Chris, and I'm currently stationed at the Sacanet Point Lighthouse 
due to a recent repair request. I'm writing this log as I'm unable to return to shore and I cannot seem to access the internet or make calls, which is unusual as I've done so a number of times at this location. I've been doing maintenance on lighthouses for almost 10 years and I'm extremely familiar with most along the New England seaboard. Tonight was not only the first night that my cell phone lost connection, but also the first time in my entire career that I've been stranded. I decided to respond to the maintenance request tonight even though it could have waited. I always have 14 hours to respond to this level of request and could have gotten some sleep before coming out here, but I'd hoped that I might end up with a clear day tomorrow if I wrapped this job up tonight. That hope was smashed once I corrected the issue with the lighting system and returned to find my skiff unresponsive. I spent an hour trying to get the engine started but without luck. Then I repeatedly tried to call my boss, Jack, also without any luck. I tried to text using any of the apps, but no luck. And finally the sun began to set behind me. It was at this point I realized I was in for a rough night. Jack would never realize that I was missing until tomorrow. Once 5 p.m. hit, Jack was always halfway into a bottle of his namesake. Tomorrow, though, tomorrow he would notice. He would check my computer and see the open ticket. Then they would come. I kept telling myself this as I headed back to the skiff to grab what remained of my stuff. Mostly repair equipment, but luckily also a few personal items that would come in handy. One of these was my Kindle. I began to read after settling into a corner. I read for maybe two hours, and then I became more aware of the storm's arrival. At first, it was like a slow unease, a queasy stomach threatening to make you move swiftly at any moment. It grew to a growl, then a raging torrent of water and wind. Soon enough, the lighthouse was pelted by a torrent of projectiles. The lightning began to flash, and once it did, the light in my station failed a second time. I was cast into darkness. For an hour amidst the absolute riot that the wind and rain were making against the windows, I tried to repair the systems. Once again without luck, I slammed the access panel closed, giving up as I had exhausted all typical checks for failed systems. I made my way around to the eastern window and watched the unearthly madness spreading across the water before me. It was then that I saw her. It must have taken me several minutes to recognize and accept what I was seeing. I stared at the still figure. My mind began to flicker through possibilities for what that shape was and how it could be where it was. At the end, my eyes slowly passed from the top of her head to her feet until the shape of her little toes removed any question in my mind. There was a little girl, maybe six years old, standing on the rocks at the base of the lighthouse, surrounded by ocean on all sides. She had dark hair, dark eyes, and was completely unclothed. I could almost feel the stings on her skin as the rain pelted her little body. I acted immediately. I could not remember descending the staircase and I was outside in a flash, but I slowed as I approached her from behind, visually tracing the twist and turn of her wet hair before the lightning. I tapped her shoulder softly so as not to upset her. She turned and without meeting my eyes, opened her arms. Even in this extreme situation, even with life and death at stake, I was very uncomfortable picking up this naked child. I did so anyway, holding her head against my shoulder as I ran back upstairs, as if to hide her from sight, so that no one would see a single middle-aged man carrying away an innocent child. I felt only slightly better once I had her upstairs, wearing my t-shirt, socks, and flannel. Then it felt a bit more normal. It felt safe. She was cold but seemed to be breathing normally. She appeared calm and wholly present. She was not shivering. I asked her to wiggle her fingers and toes, which made her giggle. All digits looked responsive and healthy. Then I asked her what her name was. She simply stared at me. The storm outside subsided and then returned even more forcefully. My head dropped from her gaze, unable to meet her eyes. I felt like deference at the time, and it still does. Sweetie, what is your name? I tried again, looking back up. Again, she stared quietly, but then shot up as lightning struck violently to the east. The storm, she screamed with glee as she pressed her face against the windows. I gently urged her back from the window. I tried to ask her name again, 
and asked her how she'd gotten there. I asked if she had been on the boat today. Had she been swimming? Anything I could think of. She shared nothing. She only stared quietly at some point at the windows, exclaiming, Storm! The storm! I tried to explain to her that we would have to sleep here tonight and that tomorrow I would take her home. She seemed to understand. I did my best to soften the floor with my sweatshirt and we used the space blanket in my emergency kit to keep us warm. Somehow, even with the hard floor punishing my hips and the cold from the concrete leaching into my side, I felt deeply asleep very quickly after I heard the little girl's breathing change. I dreamt of thunder, thunder that could topple stone walls, thunder that could wipe out suburban homes from their roots, and lightning, lightning that scorched the earth for miles, that would turn animals from their burrows in flames, hail that would tear flesh and freeze the breath right from your lungs. I woke gasping for air. The room was glowing softly from the aftermath of a recent lightning flash, and I could see immediately that she was gone. She had been against my chest with my arm over her to keep her warm, and now she was nowhere to be seen, and there was nowhere she could possibly be. I shot up and peered through the window to see her right back where I had found her. This time she was clothed in my now-soaked shirt. This time she was moving, her little hand extended before her, making scooping motions towards her chin. She was beckoning something or someone. My eyes raised, my head turned to see what she was calling. There was a Coast Guard cutter absolutely cruising towards us. Looking back, I think perhaps it was cruising to her, not us. But in that moment, I saw rescue. I saw warm blankets in a hotel. I saw the hamburger and fries that I had so sorely wanted for dinner. I watched as those hopes were dashed. There were dashes the cutter failed to slow an approach. When it tore a solid third of its hull against the rocks to the northwest of East Island, I watched in shock as the lights at the tip of the mast dipped and were then submerged. It happened so fast. One moment I thought I had seen a flashlight on deck and the next there was nothing. Nothing left. I won't say that I snapped. I didn't. There was no violent reaction, no anger or blindness, but something did happen at that moment. I felt it. I think I even heard it. On autopilot, I walked down the stairs, sullen and sure. I carefully navigated the wet rocks until I reached her once again from behind. I stopped. I did not reach out. Who are you? I asked, this time with an unacceptable level of acceptance. She turned towards me. The lightning flashed behind her. The thunder shook her little toes, and her eyes met mine. I told you. I am the storm, she smiled. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.